Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Let's jump into Colossians chapter 3. We have been in this series now for three months, which is really unusual for City Chapel. Never done this before, actually. Um, where we just went verse by verse through a book of the Bible and just see what God has to say to us. Now today, to kind of help me go quickly, I have a special handout made for you. It's there on your seat. Um, so I don't normally do that for uh, worship, uh, the sermon notes, but you can put extra notes on the back. But there's a little upside down triangle um, on your seat that you can reference Um and of course, it's triangle up, upside down because we're against the Illuminati. So, yeah. so take that, big, big, big brother, fish bones and stuff. And yeah. Uh, anyway, we're going. We're going to. It's putting it upside down. We have a right side up cross and an upside down triangle. It's how we roll. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, no, it's just, it's a list, and it's really the sermon title uh, today, which is The Anatomy of Victory. Um, the next few verses that we're going to be reading here in Colossians are kind of heavy verses. They're a little bit, um, they're dealing with sin. They're dealing with stuff that is kind of negative. And yet, as so as is so common with God, the stuff that humans find negative and, oh, we don't want to go there, we don't want to talk about that, we don't want to think about that, man, God has so much freedom for us, and yet God's word is hopeful. God's word is not condemning uh, with regard to sin. He's not judging. He's not condemning. Instead, it is there's so much hope wrapped up in these verses, and so that's why it's the anatomy of victory, not the anatomy of slavery, because God is showing a path toward victory. And so we're going to jump in. Colossians chapter 3, it'll be up here on the screen. Verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So already, somebody's beard just grew an extra inch because we're putting something, that we're killing something. We're taking it out. Uh, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And these are those things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Five things, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. Verse 7 says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now, somebody say, but now, but now it's different, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. And actually I started, I stopped in the middle of verse 8, I don't know if you noticed that, but he gives us another list. So if you, if you think today is helpful, uh, next week is also going to be helpful, we're going to jump into that next list, but I want to focus on these Five things right at the beginning. What Paul is doing, we've been in Colossians for a while. Chapter one was all about Jesus. Jesus is life. He is everything. He is the foundation. Chapter two was some warnings uh, to help you stay on Jesus. Jesus is life. He is everything. Well, chapter three now is what Nacho would call nitty gritty. It's the where the rubber meets the road. It's, it's how does this work its way into my life? It's the so what chapter. <laughs> chapter one was good, chapter two was good, but so what? This is the so what. Paul is now saying, look, if you want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, the resurrected life, this is how you do it. You've got to put some things to death. You've got to kill some things. There are some things that that God is asking us to kill, not because it's a, a hunting for sport. These are major enemies to you and to me. These are destructive to the fabric of our very being, the fabric of our family, the fabric of our society. These are the things that, that pit us against each other and bring division. These are the things that destroy and create death. And what God is trying to do, he's trying to save us from that. And so he says, man, I want you, I want you to put these things to death because if you don't, they're going to, they're, they're going to put you to death. They're going to take you out. Uh, if you remember in the story of, of David and Goliath, David is taking out Goliath, you know. Uh, well, he, on his way to kill Goliath, he picks up five smooth stones. And we got five things right here. He picks up five smooth stones. And he only needed one, though. But... Goliath had four other brothers. 
And so there are, I think, five giants facing us right here and right now that were relevant to people 2,000 years ago, but are still just as relevant in 2019. We are still dealing with these same giants. I think as long as we're on this earth, we're going to be dealing with these giants. And God has victory for us. And he's given us a path toward victory. At first, when I, when I, when I was younger and I'd read this passage, you know, it seemed to me that Paul is just kind of throwing out some things. Put to death all that belongs to your earthly um, nature, and he throws out five random things. But as you might know with Paul and with the Holy Spirit, it's never random. He's always building something. And so this week, as I've been reading this, I, I, I see that there is an there there order that's very important uh, to this list. And so if we could just put up on the screen, actually, the, the handout that you have for our folks online... There's an order to this list, and I feel like, I feel like it's an order of, of depth. So there are five giants, and these five giants build on each other. They support each other. They strengthen each other. And if you want to destroy the top one, you have to get all the way down to the bottom one. And honestly, I think almost all of us today deal with some form of one of these giants. Now, it's interesting. The list is not comprehensive. When he says, put to death that which belongs to your earthly nature, it's not comprehensive. He doesn't mention murder here. Doesn't, there's no anger in this particular list. There's no pride. Uh, when I was, I was talking to Ro about this uh, yesterday, I was telling her about this list of five things, and she said, oh, is that where they get the seven deadly sins from? And I said, no, the, the Roman Catholic Church did not go to the Bible to find its list of seven deadly sins. Um, and there's nothing actually wrong with the list because they did go to the Bible to verify that each one of those things are biblically a sin. That is true. But the list, the compilation, when, when man makes a list, when religion makes a list, we generally try to cover everything. And we cover all the surface stuff. Sexual immorality is at the top. We cover all the surface stuff. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and you're good. But when God makes a list... He, he gets one surface thing, and all the rest are beneath the surface. He gets the, he gets the iceberg and then he, that's, that, that, that's above the water, and then he gets the mountain of ice that is beneath the iceberg because you cannot destroy the giant of sexual immorality and ignore these other giants. In fact, the people that Paul's writing to, the church in Colosh, he says, you used to walk in these ways, but now you don't. And so it is possible to step away from a giant. It's possible to escape a giant. It's possible to live on the run. Truth is, you're always going to be running if you don't turn around and kill the giant. It's possible to get out of Egypt, but at some point, God's got to get Egypt out of you and out of me. And so there's a depth to the freedom that God wants to bring to you. He doesn't just want to, you to escape a particular bad behavior. He wants you to crucify and to defeat and to destroy the root of that behavior so that you can stop running, so that you can rest, so that you can live in peace and live in freedom. And so we've been talking about freedom all year long, and Miss Poppy's been excited about that. Uh, we've been talking about the freedom that God brings, and I'm telling you, God has freedom. What is wonderful about this passage is Paul says, put to death, and he lists these things. For people caught up in these things, they probably think it's impossible to completely destroy or put to death that thing that's been in their life all their life. Because they've tried everything and it keeps living and it keeps, they thought they put it in the grave, three days later it got up and got, you know, like, they, they, like they've done everything they possibly can. And what, what the hope that the scripture brings is that you can actually put these things once and for all to death. Destroy them. And so what I want to do is I want to analyze these five things and, and work our way through this list uh, and, and let the Lord speak to each one of us where we are at. Um, the great thing about City Chapel is this is a judgment-free zone. This is a condemnation-free zone. So whichever one, whichever giant's still breathing in your life, it's okay because we all probably have one or two of them or three of them in our lives. And so as we try to get free, as we try to get closer to Jesus, you can come along with us. Um, but first off, let's just look at sexual immorality. Uh, it's interesting because technically the word for sexual immorality is the word pornea in the Greek. Pornea, that's where we get our word pornography from. Um, it does not mean pornography, uh, but we get uh, our word pornography from that because it's pornea. 
It, it literally means illicit sexual acts, um, which is kind of ambiguous. It means any kind of sexual expression that's outside of the commands of God. Um, and so this word, pornea, is used throughout Scripture, uh, especially in the New Testament. And what's interesting is when you read it in the New Testament, you, you're, you have to understand that it's being written to people who have a context for it. They know what sexual morality is. And it's, it, is, it is meant to cover the gamut of what the Bible calls sexual sins. And yet, in 2019, it's kind of interesting because most of us here in this room probably don't really know what those sexual sins are. Uh, in fact, just putting the two words sexual and immorality together is kind of controversial nowadays because how can you say that an expression of sexual expression is somehow immoral? Can I just do whatever I want? Yeah, so we're going to jump into that. Uh, and that's the great thing about preaching through the Bible. You can't really ignore stuff the Bible actually says. Um, I mean, you can. You can read over it and be like, okay, next, next verses. But if we're going to be true to the Word of God, I, I, I just have to be honest with you. Um, and, 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 and this might be good for you guys, too, in love, to be honest with people that you love. Um, it's, 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 not, it's not wrong to hurt people's feelings. It is wrong to avoid, to avoid telling people the truth in order to not hurt their Lie to people. That's just, that's just not okay. And so as, with as much love and grace, because we're all dealing with something, we're all humans, let's jump into just simply what the Bible says sexual immorality is. In your handout, I have a list of scriptures there at the bottom. Um, and I, because I, I, I'm not going to read through all of those, but these will back up some of the things that I'm about to list for you. Uh, but I do have a couple of scriptures. First Corinthians six, uh, deals with a, a short list. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you can go to church, you can pray a prayer, but the, the key is, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't, do not be deceived. These people right here will not inherit Kingdom of God, sexually immoral, that's, that's the same word, pernia, people practicing pernia, nor idolaters, which is interesting because that's also on our list, idolatry, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, so adultery and homosexuality are on the list of, of sexual immorality. Now, 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 I think we know what adultery is, right? We, do I need to explain that? Okay, so sleeping with somebody who's not, you're not married to. That's what, if you're married or if they're married, you're getting together, that's adultery. Now, adultery is interesting because in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus also deals with an angle of adultery uh, that I don't think they had considered prior to this. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for pornea, and marries another woman commits adultery. So uh, serial monogamy is also adultery. And the tricky thing about talking about sexual immorality in church, probably why not a lot of people do it, <laughs> and, uh, but I'm just ignorant enough to try. Um, the tricky thing is that as soon as you start mentioning some of these things, the enemy will start whispering in people's ears, saying, well, you've done that. Well, you've done, you, you feel like that. Well, you, and, and the enemy will start condemning people start telling them that they're hopeless, start telling them that they're dirty, start telling them that they're filthy. And so just right off the bat, I got to let you know that the Word of God, the, the list here that, that Paul gives, he doesn't say what we should do after sexual immorality. He says, let's just put it to death right now. Let's just put, it, put sexual immorality to death, and then let's go under sexual immorality and let's deal with the root cause. Religion always says, well, okay, so how should we treat people that are in sexual immorality, or, or you know, okay, well, I, uh, man, I, I got divorced when I was 24, I married Jim, and I got divorced, and then I married Joey when I was 28, we've been married for 11 years, do I need to divorce Joey now to go find Jim? Of course, they both start with J, because people tend to repeat themselves. Anyway, you, 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 you no, 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 like, like, so, like, here's the deal, you, you can't ignore the 11th commandment, which is, thou shalt not be stupid, all right, I'm telling you, it's in there somewhere. Like, don't break one covenant so you can go try to make another covenant right that you already broke. Instead, what Paul is saying, Paul is, he, look, you can't undo the damage the giant has done in your life. You can't go back and fix everything. Instead, today, 
you can put that thing to death. You can say, from this day forward, I'm going to do things the way that God wants me to do things. From this day forward, I'm going to be obedient to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory be blessed. Bless, bless. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 5 deals with depriving uh, your partner in marriage for a long period of time. That's also sexual immorality. Uh, bestiality is there. Pedophilia is there. Uh, rape is there. Porn, Matthew 5, 28 kind of deals with that. There's other passages also. Um, sexting, that kind of thing. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9 deals with sex outside of marriage. In other words, people who, who are not in, a, in the covenant of marriage um, engaging in sexual activity, that's that's called sexual immorality or fornication is another word, like Bible word for that. But once again, man, like if, if you are dealing with any of these in your life, Paul's writing to the church, not writing to sinners. And so the church in Colossians, after four and a half years, they, they, were, they were running away from some giants. They had not necessarily put them to death. So you're in good company. And the true church of God ought to always have people that are dealing with giants. Because if we don't, we've become a little holy club where we all think alike and we all think the same and we're all super. And, and the truth is none of us are perfect. And so what, the, the, the thing about a, a human list is we say, oh, seven deadly sins. FYI, they're all deadly. Your sins no nice, is no nicer than the person next to you. It doesn't stink any less. It's not on that list. It's okay. You know, it's just, and we're going to get into that next week. Paul deals with another list because I'm telling you, all are deadly. It's like saying one bit of arsenic is less deadly than another. No, arsenic is just bad for you. Sin is bad for you. It is, it is destructive. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy uh, what God has for you. It'll destroy the relationship with those around you. But I'm telling you, you can put that to death today. In fact, we have people here in this audience right now that have been through, have come out the other side of divorce, that have come out the other side of adultery, that have come out the other side of all kinds. Uh, 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 Daniel and Michelle. Michelle's not here. She was here at the nine. She did a great Facebook post about coming out of, uh, coming out of sex before marriage. And uh, God, just, so anyway, if you're not friends with Michelle, go friend her on Facebook. You can read her post. We have people in this church that are not going to judge you. We're going to walk alongside you because we're all dealing with something we all need the grace of God. We all need the power of God to live this life. And so the first giant is to put to death sexual sins. But the problem is, like, they're so powerful. And many of them are habitual. And sex is different than other types of sins, not in that it's worse, in that it, it gets down to the very core of your identity. It, it is nothing more, there's nothing that, that, that touches your identity more than this area of your life. And so Paul says, look, I know it's really difficult. I know it takes the grace of God. I know you've been struggling and striving to do this. And, and, and I also know I can't just say, put it to death and walk away. Instead, there's another giant behind that. And this is the giant of impurity. It's what he calls, go back to the upside down triangle. It's what he calls impurity. Uh, it, which, which, which is the word, the, the, the original word here is ah catharsi. So ah is a negative article meaning without, um, and catharsi is from uh, the root uh, word of catharsi is to prune. So just like you go to a bush or a tree and you, you prune that tree, uh, this word impurity, it, it literally means an unpruned person, an unpruned life, an unpruned heart, an unpruned mind. And so the root of sexual immorality is a lack of pruning in a person's life. The arrogance that says nobody can tell me that I can't do what I want to do is the same thing which is so destructive to us. Because, you know, look, trees are really good at growing, but they're not always good at growing in the right direction. And they're not always good at growing the right things. So an infected tree will continue to grow that infection because it just it, it, it's a grower. That's what it is. I, I have authority on this because I'm a farmer. So you should listen to my TED Talk about farming. It's, 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 it's incredible. No, I mean, I actually, I live on a farm, which sort of is like being a farmer. So I'm just saying... And I'm married to a farmer. I hear about it all day long. Um, but no, no, you even read the Bible, man. Like, the, what was the first? I know what people say was the first profession, but what was the actual first profession? 
gardening. God created Adam and Eve, created a garden, stuck them in the garden, and asked them to tend to the garden. Why? Because his beautiful garden, all his trees that he just made, he knew that they would grow regardless of what happened to them. And so he knew that they needed somebody outside of themselves to come alongside them occasionally and snip, snip a little something off. Now, now this is tough if you're a tree because, 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 well, I, you know, I wanted to do that and I wanted to go there. And this is what I felt like in the moment. That's wonderful, but you need somebody, not a pastor, but the Holy Spirit, to come into your life and help you achieve the growth that you want. Because if you're not careful, you'll sacrifice what you want long-term for what you want right now. And an unpruned life will grow wild. The tree will grow wild. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of those trees where where like one branch just kind of took over. And, 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 and it went off to the left and, and all, all of the tree's energy went to that and all the water went to that and all the sap went to that and that thing overweighed the entire tree and it's laying down on the ground. And before long, it doesn't have enough sap and enough energy to rise up at all. And so it ends up dying because animals can just come live on it and floods can take it out. And, I mean, it, it's interesting how a tree will keep growing just like you and I will keep pushing, we'll keep going for stuff. But if you don't have the trimming of the Holy Spirit, you will grow in every which wild direction. In fact, uh, my, my wife, the farmer, was doing a, a small group um, on, on the brain. I don't know if any of you guys attended that. It was with the Carolyn Leaf book. And, and it's interesting. You look at a brain on a scan and you see a thought develop. It looks very much like a tree. There's these branches. And an unhealthy thought is very much like an unhealthy tree. There's parts of it that just go wild and it starts turning in on itself and it creates a negative loop. Which is why when you are anxious, you're thinking the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And what happens is that negative loop creates death inside of that tree. And you can't see any way out because you're in a negative loop. And so even mentally, man, you need to let the Holy Spirit just clip some thoughts. Clip some thoughts. Trust me, you don't, you don't want to just do whatever you want in the moment. To be driven by whatever feels good in the moment will ultimately kill what you actually want, the future that God has for you. And you can, I've seen people throw away their family for, 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 for a paycheck. Throw away a long, good marriage for, for a fling. And it's crazy it's crazy how you can get so focused on this thing and it starts just taking over your entire, you're not even acting like yourself anymore. Dying. And Paul says, look, if you don't put impurity to death, impurity is going to put you to death. This unpruned mind, there's some stuff you just need to, now, 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 look, you, you, you're going to have the thought, you just don't have to own it. You can send it back. It's going to grow. It's fine. You're going to get some stuff growing. You just, need, you just need the pruning of the Holy Spirit to be like, that's not working for me. That's not healthy for me. That's not what I need to be thinking about. That's not what I need to be looking at. That's not what I need to be fantasizing about. To let the Holy Spirit just clip some stuff off, to have the humility to say everything that's natural to me is not good for me. That's what a tree has to say. That's what they have to, that's what a tree has to come to an understanding that everything that's natural isn't necessarily good. There's somebody above the tree, smarter than the tree, able to see the bigger picture, and he, the Holy Spirit, is able to come to us and just snip off some of the things which are killing us, will eventually destroy us. Unpruned heart, unpruned mind. He says, man, you need to put that to death. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to, to have the authority Somebody's got to have the authority to tell you no. Nobody has the authority to tell you no. And you are an unpruned, wild tree. Why? With, with wild thoughts. And, and, it, and it never goes well. Never goes well. Just look at, I don't know, I've, I've always been interested in guys like Hitler and Jim Jones and stuff. People that nobody could tell no. Nobody could set boundaries around them. You end up eating yourself. Like you destroy yourself. Unpruned life. And underneath the unpruned life, underneath this thing called impurity is this thing called lust in Scripture. And actually, this is interesting to me because the original word for lust is really not a bad word. 
all of these other words in, in the Bible are, are generally bad. Sexually, sexual immorality is always bad. Uh, greed is always bad. Impurity is always bad. Evil desire, these things are always bad. But the word for lust is the word pathos, which is where we get our word pathetic from. Uh, it means to be full of emotion or full of uh, um, ethos, which is feeling, full of life. It means to be passionate. It means to be driven. And that's not always a bad thing. We have any passionate people here at City Chapel? That's right. Jonathan got his. That's right. All right. And and there's a few other. You're 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 trying to ghost on me like you're not, but you are passionate. Like you just you just talk about the right thing. Yeah, I, I hope Poppy raised her hand. We got trees. Pastor, start talking about trees and freedom, and she's okay. I mean, like, and actually, I think almost all of us. I'm passionate. I'm driven. If I wasn't passionate about preaching, I'd be passionate about something else. You'd be talking about my fantasy football team. I'm passionate about that. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, like, all of us, I think, are passionate. We're driven for something because we were created for that. We were created to be passionate, to throw ourselves into something, to accomplish something. All different things, but we were created to be passionate. And so the passion is not the problem. It's the placement of the passion that's the problem. All the P's that I could think of in one sentence. It's a misplaced passion. So lust is a misplaced passion. The problem is not passion. It's, the, it's where the passion resides. It's where it's placed. The problem also with being passionate is that you just kind of are passionate about what you're passionate about no matter where you are, no matter what place you are in. And so even as a preacher, being passionate about preaching, I can't help but find sermon illustrations everywhere I go. And so we went on vacation a few weeks ago, and I wasn't on the job, but I was still passionate about preaching. And so we went into an aquarium. And um, I saw some fish, and I kind of saw a sermon illustration in the fish. This happens all the time, which is, makes it real fun to live with me because you never know. But I do have to be careful not to share all my family secrets and all my kids' stories and all of my mom and dad's mistakes. Um, so I just, you know, I <laughs> problem with raising a preacher. It's like, what's he going to say this week? Uh, but no, you know, you kind of got to think about that. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, like, sermon illustrations all over the place. And I, and I came across these fish. And it was just such an odd thing. I don't know. I stood in front of the tank. We were in Maine, which is right on the coast. I mean, you have the ocean. You guys have heard of that, right? Okay. So it's a big body of water. It's a lot of water, um, kind of like Lake Travis, but like big. And um, anyway, it's, it's just, it's amazing. And right on the coast is this little aquarium in this little town. So we took the kids. Hey, we'll go check out the aquarium. We found a 14-pound lobster, which was ridiculous. Uh, that thing was could like eat me. I mean, it was it was massive. Um, anyway, we found out a lot of cool stuff about lo lobsters, uh, and I love to eat lobster with butter, and it's so good. And so we it was kind of informative. But I but but I but I came to this tank with these fish that were just going around in circles. And so I got on my phone. And I'm like, man, this is a great sermon. And so I just quick I did a quick little minute long recordings. But I want you guys to check out these fish. They're called alewives, alewaves. That's it, alewaves. This is about a 10-foot wide tank by about 5 feet deep. There's a little tree stump in the middle. Um, ale wave. They're kind of like salmon. Yeah, so I kind of zoomed in. I'm like, what are you guys thinking? <laughs> because what was funny, and so yeah, that's, that's them, ale wave. It's an interesting thing. I, I, you know, I stood in front of that tank and I was like, man, like these guys never stop. Like they're just going and going and going. Like, and, you know, like I, I wonder, do they know that they're in a tank? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, but they're, they're just kind of like, like, like looking. Can I go there? Nope. 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 Can I go there? Like they're in this big loop of nope. You know, it's just a nope loop. And they're just going around and around. I felt kind of bad for them. And so, and so I was reading about the L wave right there on the, on the, on the, on the little, little write up. And it said they're kind of like salmon. I'm like, well, I know salmon, like salmon travel long distances. And so I, I got online, got on my phone, and I was reading about the alewaves. And alewaves, they, they're, they're the type of fish, they're born in freshwater. And then when they're about nine months to a year old, they make a trip out to the ocean. 
And then they hang out in the ocean for about two years. And when they're three years old, they make a trip back into freshwater to spawn to have, to have babies. And um, they're, they're most famous for going through the, uh, what is it called, the Welland, the, the, the Welland Canal, which is in Canada. And so basically... Uh, I'm from Michigan, Port Huron, Michigan. It's right in the knuckle of the thumb. The, the lake, the great lake right next to us is Lake Huron. And apparently Lake Huron, Huron was full of a lot of airwaves because they had overpopulated it because they found a way to make it through the little, little, little bit of water between the ocean and, and Huron. But, but between that is a little thing called Niagara Falls. I don't know if you heard about it. It's kind of powerful. You stand by it. You feel the base just shaking your chest. The ground is rocking. And so what they did is they went around Niagara Falls and they went through the Welland Canal, which is 27 miles long. And it's only, I don't know, like 100 feet wide. It's like these, it's just for a shipping canal. And these fish, they're used to going upstream. They're used to fighting, going against difficult, traveling long distances. And I realized, man, that's why even in captivity, they never, they never stop. And as I stood there, I realized, man, I know a lot of people just like that. Because you will be what you are, whether you're in a little 10 by 5 tank or whether you're in the ocean. The ocean, it's a big place. They were created for the ocean. They were created for travel. They were created to fight. They were created to find ways around the Niagara Falls. They were created to, to go this long distance. And then we stuck them in a little 10 by 5 cage. And they don't stop being who, they've who they were created to be. They just be that in captivity. And that kind of passion, that kind of power stuck in a 10 by 5 cage looks a lot like going around in a circle. And so I, I'm just telling you, man, you were, there's a reason why you're passionate. There's a reason why you're driven. It's not, it wasn't a mistake. God didn't mess up. He put passion inside of you. You were created for the ocean. You were created for the Welling Canal. You were created for adventure, for greatness, for imagination, for, for pushing, for making stuff happen. And if, and the problem is not your passion. The problem is the place where your passion is residing. You're stuck in a trap you let the devil stick you in a little 10 by 5 tank and it's so frustrating because you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you have this nope you're stuck on a nope loop <laughs> and it's frustrating i'm convinced that much of the reason why we have this this is unpruned mind is because we're so frustrated in the confines of our trappedness we have to grow somewhere. And if we can't grow where we think we should, then we'll, we'll have to grow this way. Much of sexual immorality is not because people are perverts. It's because they're trapped and they have so much passion that it's got to go somewhere. Anxiety is because you're just going around in circles. Uh, sleeplessness is because you're just going around. So much depression, not all of it, but some depression is just because you're going around in circles because you were created for greatness and you're stuck here with no fulfillment, with no peace, with no purpose, no accomplishments. And, 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 so, and so we reach out for other things. We'll sacrifice our family for a paycheck. Because, well, I mean, at least I can do that. Created to be a great dad and a great husband and to shape the next generation, but you're stuck on a nine to five. And then multiple other things that, that pull and, and grab your attention. And, and that's why that's where frustration comes in. Because no matter how hard you push and how much you try, you're, you're stuck in this, this trap. And yet Paul says you can put that to death today, man. You can, you can go out into the ocean through the power of Jesus. You can step into the place you're created to be. And it'll feel like pruning at first. And it'll feel like death at first. But in the end, it is resurrection life. It is power. It's freedom. It's joy. It's purpose. It's what you were meant to be. You were meant to go from the ocean all the way to Lake Huron. You were meant to this like circle. The same thing every day. Oh, but the enemy will say, okay, we well, just need to you, you just need to change your context. Oh, you need to change your trap. 
can change your marriage, you can change your church, you can change your city, you can change your country if you want. But as long as your heart is still trapped, the lies of the enemy are still your boundaries. You'll be stuck. This is the fourth one. He says there are evil desires. The word for evil desire, evil is kaka. That's just a gift in preaching right there. Kaka. I told you sin was chocolate-covered poop. I just didn't have the Bible to back it up. I always thought I was just making stuff up. But evil, apparently not. Prophetic. Evil is kaka. <laughs> and desire means to turn and to face something. What, the, what, what, what keeps you in the trap? That's what you keep looking at. That's what keeps you in the track. See, the, 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 the direction of your face will set the affection of your heart. And quite frankly, many of us are focused on the caca in our life. <laughs> We're focused on the caca. Man, our country just can't stop reporting the caca. Like, why in the world? <laughs> On my news feed, it's all a bunch of caca. It's like, we, 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 it, 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 it stirs up, you know, it, it, it's, it's clickbait. It gets people, it gets people passionate. It gets people thinking, because caca will give it a reaction. I mean, <laughs> like I said, I live on a farm. I live around caca. There's a lot of caca. And boy, you smell that, you get a reaction. Not a good one, but you get a reaction. It, it, it'll, it'll, it'll wake you up. The problem is, man, when you're focused on caca, it's, it is a reaction. It does keep you engaged, which I guess is why the media does it. But my goodness, the, the focus of our, when the focus of our life is caca, when, when we focus on the problem, whatever the problem is, even if the problem is sexual immorality, we might look up there and be like, yep, okay, I need, to, I need to get rid of that. 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 Well, what are you doing? You're focusing on the caca. And the, where you set your focus will, will, will set your affection. And so if you set your focus on the problem, then your affection will be whatever promises to deal with the problem. And boy, uh, the enemy has a lot of prescriptions for you. Try harder. Get a spouse that is nice to you. Change your environment. Get in a different city. That's probably the problem. It was Austin. Clearly. Yeah, it's weird. It's really good food and amazing coffee. Definitely a bad place to live. No, like it'll try to... The enemy has all kinds... He'll keep you going around that cage like all your life. Maybe it's that. Nope, maybe it's that. Nope, maybe it's that. Nope, maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. I already tried that. Let's try it again. Nope, I don't think... Why? Because you're focused on... You're focused on what's wrong. This is true even not with regard even to sin. Sometimes we're so focused on, there's always going to be a squeaky wheel in your life, by the way. Uh, sometimes it's the bills. Sometimes it's the finances, and you're so focused on the bills. You say, well, how could somebody get to a place where they sacrifice their family for a paycheck? Well, if you're focused every day, all day, on how am I going to pay these bills, then that little thing called money suddenly looks really attractive to you because that's going to solve problem. The, the affection of your heart is tuned to the focus of your face, what you're thinking about. That's what I'm talking about, because many of us aren't actually facing literal caca, but we are, our hearts are turned toward the problem. Hearts are turned toward the issue. Our hearts are turned toward the sin. Our hearts are turned toward the division in our country. Our hearts are turned toward the political issues. Our hearts are turned toward the negative, and because of that, we love anything that we think might fix it. All these different options, and it's this, it's this doom loop of, of repetitive strife and struggle and trying and missing and trying and missing. The only answer to this is to turn and face Jesus. Only answer. That's why, this is why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 5, set your mind on things above. The stuff down here, man, it's changing, it's shifting, it's moving, it's caca. <laughs> and 
Boy, if you want your life to stink, smell very poorly, just bring caca closer to your face. Like, that'll do it. The whole, your whole home will smell like it. Your conversations will start smelling like it. Your ambitions will start smelling like it. Oh, you've been, you've been focusing, carrying around this thing, which, which you can't, once again, you can't avoid it. Living on a farm, it's a natural process. Can't avoid evil until you die. Evil's all around us. Can't avoid division. It's all around. You can't avoid sin. You can run away from this giant if you want, but it would be better. Kill the giant's influence over your life. Say, look, you can you can be on the farm, but you're not coming to my house. You know, check your shoes at the door, kids, because I don't want any of what's out there in here. Feel like we gotta gotta check our shoes at the door. Feel like we gotta make sure that okay, it's out there. Yeah, it's on my newsfeed, sure. Um, but there's only so many people you can unfollow. Until <laughs> you unfollow everybody. I'm getting off Facebook. Oh, it's just it's always grandma. I'm uninstalling it so Zuckerberg doesn't have my information. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too late because Google's already got it. So whatever. I mean, like, go ahead, focus on the caca. But man, I mean, it's not going to help you. If you want freedom, if you want peace, I focus on Jesus. Got to focus on Jesus. He is the not a church, not a religion. Jesus, not a song that makes you get goosebumps, but Jesus. There's a there's an Old Testament passage of. One of the prophets, Isaiah, and Isaiah lived in a time, it starts the chapter off with these words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Um, the context of that is pretty interesting because Uzziah was a king over Israel who was a wicked king. He was an unpruned king. Nobody could tell him no. And he wanted to see the glory of God. He didn't want to submit to it, but he wanted to see it. And that was forbidden. God said, look, only a priest once a year can come into the most holy place. And even then, that priest has to have a rope around his ankle in case he does something wrong and dies so they can drag him out. It's a serious deal to stand before God. This thing. Never supposed to be a game. Never supposed to be for your power play, for your pleasure, for you to feel like you're more important. Never supposed to be that. But Uzziah said, no, I am more important. I don't need a priest. I want to see it for myself. He marched into the temple. His guards tried to stop him. He marched into the temple, pulled back the veil, and immediately he was stricken with a fatal disease. And so when Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died, he's saying in the year that all this went down, that our king, he got so unpruned that he killed himself. Essentially, his sin destroyed him. He knew what it was going to do. Everybody told him. They warned him. That's, that's, that's what happens with this, this, this sin. It is destructive. Destroyed his potential. Destroyed his family. Destroyed his reign. Destroyed his influence. Destroyed his opportunities. And God was trying to save him from that. But, but he wouldn't do it. And so Isaiah said, man, in that, that season in our country, president or the king destroying himself and those who were with said, I saw the Lord. What's interesting is Isaiah didn't march into the temple, though. Isaiah's in prayer, coming home from a funeral of a king who wanted to see God because he wanted more power. And then God reveals himself to Isaiah. Isaiah was submitted to that God. And he was focused on him. And so he said, in the year that King Uzziah died for trying to see God, I saw the Lord, not just the little box, not the ark, the golden ark with the blue flame in the middle, but actually God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was in heaven, seated on a throne. And he said, I saw this robe that was, that was flowing down from him. He said, the train of his robe went all the way from heaven, all the way to earth. There was this red line from heaven to earth, this robe that went from heaven to earth, and it filled the whole temple. And in those days, a long robe was a sign of many victories because when you defeated a king, you stole his robe, 
and you sowed it onto the end of yours. And so if you were a king that had many victories, you would have a long-ish robe. But this king is all the way in heaven, and the spance, I don't know how far it is from heaven to earth, but that spance, well, we know heaven is ever-expanding, so that's an interesting concept. Uh, the galaxy is going, anyway, from somewhere to here, the connection between heaven and earth was victory. Several layers of victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. And then that victory filled the entire temple so you couldn't even see the box that Uzziah wanted to see. Uzziah wanted to see the religion. He wanted to see the mechanics of it. And yet, and yet Elijah, or Isaiah said, I saw the victory of God. The victory of God was more important than the box. I saw that the connection between heaven and earth is victory. And this is God's relationship to us. His absolute victory over every giant that has threatened us. Over every enemy both outside of us and within us that would destroy us. He has conquered it. He is seated on the throne. He said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, not just the temple, Isaiah, the whole earth is filled with his victory, his glory. That's actually what he said. And then Isaiah said, when he saw that, he said, woe is me. For I am right here. I got this stuff. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. And when he said that, an angel came from the temple, from the altar, and took a coal and touched his lips with it. Because this is what happens when, when, you, when, you, when, you want, when you want to put God at the highest place. Uzziah wanted to use God. But when you want to put God at the highest place, he can handle your sin. It's okay. Like whatever's unclean in you, whatever, wherever you fall on this list, it's fine. He's going to bring, he can just, when he touches it, boom. Because real conviction is not God making you feel bad. It's crying out, woe is me, for I am under, I need something I don't have. God says, hey, I have that. Right there in the altar, grabs a coal, touches his lips, and he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your sins have been atoned for. Done. It's dead. Put to death. That's what happens when you take something really hot and singe it. It kills all of the sensitivity in that area. That's what God wants to do, I think, in our hearts today. He wants to touch areas that we feel deep shame about. Some of which is not even our fault. Some of which has just happened to us. Stuff that's been perpetrated on us. It set us in a, in a downward spiral. Some of us are dealing with these issues, but I'm telling you, if you change your focus, you'll change your affection. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Finally, underneath that is a thing called greed. I know nobody here struggles with that, so that's going to be an easy one. It's interesting. It's the thing that nobody deals with, but everybody knows somebody who does. You notice that? I was asked, when I was an associate pastor at Promised Land San Marcos, I was asked to preach a sermon on greed, and I never preached a sermon on greed before. I thought, man, what I guess it's bad, but I, but is it? like? And... Um, well, simply put, it's, it's a desire or a need for more. How much? More. And I thought, well, well okay, but doesn't everybody want more? <laughs> there you go. And I was talking to Roe about this. This is, this is a long time ago. This is my BC days. I was talking to Roe about this, and I was like, honey, you know, I can't really identify with people that struggle with greed. You know, because I thought you had to have something to want more. Because I never made more than $40,000 a year in my life. And I had two kids and we had a house and medical bill payments and all kinds of, you know. So I thought you had to have a lot of something to 
be greedy. I said, I've never struggled with greed. I hardly have anything. That's real easy for me. And Rose said, well, you have a lot of clothes. Like I said, this is my BC days. I, uh, I said, babe, I don't, I don't have a lot of clothes. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, no, like every, like every time you get a little money to spend, like twice a year, um, like you go shopping for clothes. And you, like, you like, how many pants do you need? And I said, babe. More. Because <laughs> I don't have like that color, that style. style. I don't know if you realize this or not. Styles change. I'm just pointing that out. I'm just saying. And so I said, babe, I don't have that many pants. She said, you, you, you ought to go count your pants. I said, I will count my pants. I'll go to my closet right now. I went to my closet and started laying out on the floor all of my pants. Got the hangers, dress pants, casual pants, jeans, Jeans with elastic, jeans without elastic, skinny jeans, kind of like rank shredded ones for less casual, more casual, less casual, different colors, dark, light, in between, gray. We're talking, and and I just laid, laid them all out, and I was like, I was just tired dealing with pants. Just, just chill. You look after yourself. Look after yourself. Throw flags on me. Just kidding. That's from that's from a couple weeks ago. Throwing the flags. Um, anyway, uh, call back. Um, so I was like, I was I was I laid them all out and I, and I counted them. I think it was. Do you remember, honey? It was. I, I was going to say twenty eight. I was going to say twenty eight pairs of pants. And I was like, and they all, and and they all fit. It's not like I'm like like I outgrew some and I'm waiting to get skinny again. Like literally, they all I, I could wear almost one a day, a different one every day for the whole month, and then just repeat the whole cycle. And I was like, this is not good. I didn't realize I had that many pants, and so I took a picture of it in, in my sermon. I put the picture up, and uh, I said, if anybody needs pants size 28, just come see me, come holla, and uh, I got you. Um, nobody took me up on it. I don't know why. It's just the weird. It's, it's 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 all my muscles. That's the problem. But you know, it's interesting how the need for more. You know, you can laugh about pants because they. But that is something that I would do with my every time I had some extra money. I go shopping. I'm telling you, like it's so insidious the way greed creeps in. And it can be more pants. It can be more shoes. Uh, it can be more. Money, be larger bank account. It can be more food, nicer food. It can be it can be uh, more house, more more space. It can be more land. It can it can also be more compliments. It can be more affection, be more attention, be more approval. It's interesting the way just the desire for more. And essentially, what Paul is saying is that that greed is technically it's idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is an idol. That's where you like build something and bow down to a to an idol. Why is greed like idolatry? Well, why do you think why do you think the people in the Old Testament would bow down to an idol for kicks and giggles? No, like uh, you read. You read scripture, for instance, uh, Ahab had an evil wife named Jezebel. You might have heard of her. She brought in the worship of Baal. Baal was an idol. He's a little goat thing, gold goat deal. And, so, and he built a temple for Baal in Samaria, in their, in their capital. And people were worshiping Baal. And, and uh, the prophet Elijah approached Ahab and said, Hey, you know this is against the rules. It's idolatry. Um, and it's interesting in scripture the, this, 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 there's not much about this context, but uh, in, in, in the Jewish writings, it elaborates a little more, and it says that Ahab quoted Moses and said, Moses said that if we turn from Jehovah to other gods, that God would stop the rain and, and we wouldn't have any produce in our fields, and yet, look, it's still raining. And then in uh, I think it's First Kings chapter 17, Elijah says, okay not going to rain anymore in, in, in this country for years until I say so. Now, you do that to the American economy, and it's devastating. You do that to 
ancient economy, it is absolutely a death blow. You don't eat, you don't have water, people are dying. And, and, and Ahab says, fine, be that way. Because he couldn't be pruned. No one's going to tell him what to do. And then the rain stops. And then it gets difficult. And then in the middle of the drought, God sends Elijah to this poor widow in this town. And he goes up to this widow and he, she's, she's, she doesn't have anything. And she's, the poor people get hit the worst. And the rich people got some resources, but she doesn't have anything. And so he goes to the widow and he says, would you give me something to drink? Which is scarce. Water was scarce. And she says, okay. And so she goes to get him something to drink. And he says, hey, while you're at it, could you get me some bread? That was also very scarce. And she says, look, I don't know if you realize this or not. This is Harry's version. I don't know if you realize this or not, but me and my son are about to die. We literally don't have enough food for another day. I have just enough for one little cake of bread. Me and my son are going to eat it, and then we're going to die. But she says something interesting. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. That's the way she started that whole statement. <laughs> that, see... That's why we turn to other things. Because God isn't working for us anymore. Can you imagine if, if all of Austin was without rain for three years, but they're having rain and down in Kyle? And you go down to the folks in Kyle, what are you, what's going on? And they're like, well, we're worshiping this, this God over here. You, you, you rub this, then you, you pray to that and whatever, and boom, you get rain. Oh. Suddenly, because humans want to do what works for them. One of the reasons why we turn away, why we, why we no longer say my God, why we say your God, is because it's not working for me anymore. It's not, it's, he's not providing like I thought he would, and it's not, I don't think he's enough. I think I need something else. Elijah says to her, he says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, not my God, our God, the only God, as surely as he lives, if you do what I'm asking, you put me first, I'm, I'm a symbol of God, then your oil will never run out, your flour will never run out, your water will never run out. Our God will take care of your need. Our God will supply all your needs according to his riches in, in Jesus, and because he's enough. And so she does it. Her and her son live. Why that weird story? Because it's a, it's a symbol of what God was trying to do for all of Israel. He was judging them not to, not to beat them up, but to pull them back to him. Show them, rain is not your source. Your crops are not your source. Me. If you look at me, if you focus on me, I'll give you everything you need. I'll pour out everything that you need. You won't have to even ask for it. Because kids don't have to ask. They just walk into the house, open the fridge, you get what they want. That's what God wants to do for you today. He wants you to come into his living room. What do you need? What victory do you need? What power do you need? What help? What wisdom do you need? What healing? What wholeness do you need? Father, we come to you. We just create space. Let's just create a couple of minutes of space to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father, we ask for you to speak. Speak to us about these different giants our lives, these different things that we're facing. You know where we're at, and you don't judge us or condemn us for it. Instead, you offer hope. You offer the power. Deal with it, but very root of our life, we must believe that you are enough. We must believe. We must, that's what faith is, is to believe. We must believe that you're enough. You're enough for our struggles. You're enough for our shame. You're enough for what we're going through. You have great plans in store for us. You have greatness already placed inside of us. <laughs> that's, 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 that's what got us in this. That's, that the enemy used what you intended for good, the enemy used for evil. But Lord, you can turn it around and make a great victory for us because you still know what you put inside of us when you still know the plan. For us. You still know the passion you put inside of us. You still know the drive you put inside of us. You still know the joy. 
you put inside of us. And so we look to you today, Lord. We surrender to you. We focus on you. Turn our eyes away from stink, stench of sin, and the stench of what's wrong. We turn our eyes to what you say about us, who you are. Focus on you. So Lord, speak to us. Speak to us about where we are and what you have for the next step for us. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us. Fighting, dying on behalf of the world, the innocent for the guilty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.